good morning to all of you. I'm so grateful to be with you today. If you've got your Bibles, you can join me in 2 Peter. And uh, we're going to be in verse, uh, excuse me, in chapter 1 this morning. We're going to look at the first eight verses. And uh, I, I, I look forward to great study with you today. Summer is upon us, although it has a little trouble making up its mind out there. If it's summer yet or not, but uh, it's, it's still a fun season. My family went over to the home of another family just the other night, and we were grilling some burgers, and we uh, had a few laughs, and we got around to playing some games, and I couldn't help but think about how much games have changed. I played a game at this house that I'd never played before, and I could only think that they must have downloaded some sort of an app or something to a computer, and they beamed it to their smart TV, and then everybody in the room that participated in this game participated via our smartphones. And we all had these little cartoon representatives, uh, avatars, I guess, is what they are on the screen there. And so we played this game. It's kind of a silly trivia game. And if you answered the question correctly, you advanced. And if you answered incorrectly, then something horrible yet comical happened to your avatar on the screen. And it was a lot of fun. And uh, and, and we had a great time, but it did remind me that games have changed, okay? When I was growing up, you went to somebody's house and you played a game, you're talking about Yahtzee or Uno or something like that. Uh, but games have changed throughout the years. This is a very old game, and we're going to talk about this game today. And we're going to use it as a motif for something that we're going to study. But this is an old game, and it's called chess. Now, chess is not a leisurely game. Chess is not a frivolous game. Chess is not something where you just check out your mind and you just have a good old time. Nobody goes to grandma's house over the holidays and says, hey, everybody, let's play some chess. You know, this is not hungry, hungry hippos. This is a serious game. This game requires some serious focus and concentration. Now, if you go to my office and you look around, you might assume that I play a lot of chess because I've got like nine or ten chessboard set up in my office. The truth is I don't play a lot of chess, but I love the idea of chess, and I love the artistry of the pieces and the board, and a lot of chessboards are very ornate, very beautiful. Whenever I go to a foreign country, I come home with a chessboard from that country, and so in my office, I've got one from Greece, I've got one from India, I've got one from Hong Kong and Spain, I've got some from Mexico and Uganda, and then there's this one right here, and this is one of my favorites, my father-in-law made this chessboard for me with his 3D printer. Isn't that nice? And look at this. It's even got magnetic chess pieces. How about that? So if I get mad and I toss the board, everything stays in place. But this is a game that will drive you crazy. Chess champions will pull out their hair because of this game. The most famous chess game of all time took place in 1972. The American champion Bobby Fischer was facing off against the Soviet champion, Boris Spassky. And like every face-off between those two countries during the Cold War, it was a big, big deal. It was representative of something much larger, you know, capitalism versus communism and such. Bobby Fischer was regarded as the greatest living chess player in the world at the time. He was expected to win. But on game one, he sat down, and during the play, he, he made a critical error and he knew it. And he buried his face in his hands. Well, Spassky recognized the mistake that Fisher had made. He capitalized on it. And he won that match. 
And Fisher was irate. He was so distraught that he'd lost that match. He was kind of an irregular personality, a little eccentric. And he blamed his gameplay on distractions in the room. He said that the people in attendance that were watching, were, were, they were too noisy. And he did have people there rooting him on from the United States. Spassky had his Soviet crowd cheering him on as well. But they weren't really making all that much noise. I mean, it's a, it's a chess game. But, but Fisher said that he could hear them breathing. You know, and that's why he lost his focus. He said the cameras in the room, well, they, were, they were humming, and it, it, it distracted him. Well, the officials at the, the game, they said, well, for game two, we'll try to make those corrections to your liking. But Fisher was irate. He didn't even show up at game two. He forfeited the match to Spassky. Now Spassky's up two games to zero. Everybody thought, well, this is it. It's all over. For Fisher, but Bobby Fisher shows up. Game three, he's got a plan. He goes around to the crowd and he pushes them back. He has them move back manually. He commands them all to be silent during the game. He then goes around all the cameras and he, he tweaks the mechanisms on the equipment to, to ensure that they are quiet. And then he moves them out of his peripheral vision so he cannot see them at all. And then he sits down and he plays chess. And he wins that game. And not only does he win that game, he wins every game that follows. And he is crowned the chess champion. This is a serious, serious game. It requires focus. It requires intentionality. It requires concentration. And today we are likening this game to spiritual growth. Because spiritual growth, like chess, also requires focus, intentionality, concentration, and it requires time. Time. You need time to get good at a game like chess. Nobody sits down at a chessboard for the very first time without even a cursory understanding of this game and has any expectation that he's going to win. No, you need to know some things. And so some of the things that you would need to know are what are the various pieces on the board and what do they do? And then you need to know, secondly, what are the strategies that I would implement in order to be an effective player. And you would learn these things by possibly going online, studying, or it used to be you would purchase a manual, a chess book, and you would read that and you'd take time to read that. Well, we've got a text today in Second Peter that reads sort of like a chess manual. And Peter describes some gifts that every believer has been given by divine right. Some pieces with which we are to make maneuvers. And after he describes these gifts, he then goes forward and he talks about some strategies, some ways that we are to use those gifts. And so that's what we're going to talk about today, the pursuit of spiritual growth using the pieces that God has given us and implementing some strategies found in his word. And, and, and we're going to use this game and we're going to correlate to spiritual growth. Would you bow with me? Heavenly Father, I just ask your blessing upon our time in the Word today. Would you just anoint our reading and our understanding of, of the Scriptures this morning, and may we apply it in our lives, knowing that sometimes the Christian life is, is sort of like a, a, a game of chess, God, and it's a game that has been won by a grandmaster, and so help us to know how to move the pieces in the likeness of the one who played it and won it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
All right, we're going to take a look here at 2 Peter 1. Six gifts that God has given every believer. Just so happens there are six pieces, six different kinds of pieces on this chessboard. And we're going to draw a correlation between the two here. So in verse 1, it says, Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ to those who have obtained a faith. All right? And so... In your notes, number one, the first gift that you have been given as a believer is the ability to trust. The ability to trust. Did you know that that's a gift? The ability to trust. Faith is a gift. It's not something that you just decide to do. It's something that God has granted you. You say, Pastor Scott, you're starting to sound like a hyper-Calvinist here. No, no. I absolutely believe in the free will of man. But it is abundantly clear in Scripture, and I don't know how this works, but faith is a gift. How does the will of man work in conjunction with the sovereignty of God? I know not. But I do know that Scripture describes faith as a gift. You don't simply believe in and of yourself. God grants you belief. There's no question about it. He doesn't grant belief to anyone based on merit. He grants it based on his will. He calls you to himself. All right? Now, in chess, you've got this piece right here. This is called a rook. A rook. And you'll notice when you look at the rook, it's got ridges on the top, and it kind of looks like, like a tower, uh, that is part of a castle, okay? So I always thought this is a really cool-looking piece. And so when we, when we have faith, what is it we place our faith in? We place our faith in God, in Jesus Christ. And in doing so, we're establishing our hope in something that is indestructible. And so there is a spiritual protection now for those who are of faith, right? We read in Psalm 18:2, "...the Lord is my rock and my fortress." My deliverer, my God, my strength in whom I will trust, trust, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I love all that language there. It was just a few weeks ago we were talking in Ephesians about the armor of God. And what is one of those components? It's the shield. What is the shield of? It is the shield of faith. And it guards us against all the flaming arrows of the evil one. And so we have faith and the rook symbolizes that faith. Now in chess, there's a move that you can make with the rook, and it is a very unique move. It's the only move in the game of chess that involves two pieces, one of them being the rook. The other piece is this piece right here, and the move is called castling. Castling. It's the only move that involves two pieces, and this is the other piece. It's the most recognizable piece on the chessboard. This is the king. This is the king. Everybody on this side of the board is aligned with this king right here. All of these pieces are representative of the kingdom of this king. And so when you have faith in a righteous king, then you have received in your notes, number two, a righteous position. A righteous position. Peter says we've obtained a faith. And it's a faith of equal standing with ours in the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. Our God and Savior Jesus Christ. That is the correct translation. Some versions of the Bible say our God and our Savior Jesus Christ, as though those are two separate entities. Peter makes no distinction between God and Jesus Christ. They are one and the same. And so Jesus is God. Amen. You believe that? He is our lone authority. And so we are referring to him as our God and our Savior. And so when you put your faith 
in that righteous king, Jesus Christ, you know, are, are on a good footing with the Lord. You have a, a good standing, a righteousness. And so this faith, this ability to trust in a divine Savior grants you a position. And there's another piece here called the pawn. This is the pawn, okay? Now this is regarded as the weakest piece on the chessboard. And it's considered weak because a pawn can only do one thing. It can only move forward, all right, one space at a time. That's all it can do. It's very limited in its movement. But though it is weak, it is still very important because there are more pawns than any other piece on the entire board. You need pawns. Whoever designed chess designed it in such a way that pawns are an important component of the game. And they're, they're most effective when they're, when they're used in conjunction with the movement of other pawns. But their job is to just keep moving forward. You and I are like that little pawn. We are commoners. We are weak. There is nothing, nothing special in and of us. But as little commoners, by faith... <laughs> in a righteous king, we have, in your notes, a common bond. We've got a common bond, all right? He says, you have obtained a faith of equal standing. Equal standing. And then he says, it's an equal standing with ours. And that phrase, with ours, is very important when you think about who Peter is addressing. Peter is, is speaking here to the saints in Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. What kind of peoples are those? They're Gentiles. What kind of person is Peter? Well, he's, he's a Jew, isn't he? He's a Jewish believer. The Jew traditionally has looked down on the Gentile as being lesser. They are not the chosen people, the Gentiles. And yet Peter says, by faith, you now have a common bond with us. Your faith is on equal footing with our faith because it's in Jesus Christ. There's no difference between you and us. As we've studied in Ephesians, uh, there's neither Jew nor Greek. All are one in Christ. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, one Father of all, over all, in all, through all. That's a common bond. How many of you Gentiles out there are glad about that? I'm awfully glad about that. I was not born Jewish. And so to be grafted in, to be brought in, to have this plan of redemption opened up, that is special. A common salvation. There's no varsity in JV in the family of God. Amen? And so what makes that possible, the reason that you and I can have a common bond, is in your notes because of a limitless grace. A limitless grace. Now there's another piece on this board. This is the queen. The queen. Now, the queen is unique. The queen is special. And what makes the queen so special is there is virtually no limit to her movement. She can go forward. She can go side to side. She can go backwards. She can go anywhere. She can go diagonal. All right? There is virtually nowhere on this board that the queen cannot go. How far can she go? As many spaces as are clear in front of her. There's almost nowhere on this board she cannot reach. And she, she represents all of the king's power, you understand. And grace is the same way. The grace of God has no limit. The grace of God can reach you wherever you are. And if you're sitting here today and you know the Lord Jesus and his spirit lives in you, then his grace did reach you. Okay? He didn't care who you were, where you've been, what you've done, who you have been running with. 
You cry out to him and his grace will find you. It is a limitless grace. How far did Jesus go? He went to the cross. He laid down his life. He left heaven and he came to earth and he gave it all up. You can't get farther apart than heaven and the grave. And yet that is the limitlessness of God's grace. And verse 2 here really explains verse 1. Peter says, may grace and peace. And you can't have peace without grace. Right? You need to know the grace of Jesus Christ in order to have peace. May that be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Elsewhere, Paul says, in him we've been made complete. John says, of his fullness we've received and grace upon grace. Charis epicharis in the Greek. And by that grace you are able to do things you could not do otherwise. You've got something now by grace that you never had before. This piece right here is one of my favorite pieces. This is called A Night. And I always loved this piece. Even before I knew anything about chess, I liked this piece because I liked the horse motif. I thought the horse made it look pretty cool, you know. But it's a night. And the night is special because of the way the night moves. No piece moves like the night. It moves in an L shape. You can go up two spaces and over one. You can go over two spaces and up one. And it's the only piece where you can jump over another piece on the board. And so the knight is able to navigate obstacles like no other piece on the board. Let me ask you, do we have to op- uh, navigate some obstacles in life? Is that true? Do we have some challenges that we face? Some tough questions that come along? We need to be able to navigate those. What do we need to be able to navigate the questions of life? We need the right information. And so this is number five in your notes. It's the, it's the revelation of his will. It's the revelation of his will. Here's what Peter writes, verse three. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Uh, it is impossible to navigate the issues of life without revelation. You need the revelation of God. You need information to answer the questions that you come across. And fortunately, we have a revelation, don't we? It's called the Word of God. And you may have a copy in your lap that you're looking at right now. And so we have to be in the Word in order to answer the pertinent questions of life. And it it addresses all the questions. You want to be a better husband? It's in the Word. You want to be a better wife? It's in the Word. You want to be a better child to your parents? You want to be a better employee to your boss? You want to be a better co-worker with those that labor with you? You want to be a better citizen? All of the answers on how to do that are in the Word of God. And so uh, we don't need more than that. We don't need some mystical revelation. You don't need me to provide you with some supernatural encounter. Everything that you need to navigate life is in His Word. And Peter, having gone through all of this, he goes on now and he says that God's called us to his own glory and excellence, verse 4, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of what? Of the divine nature. Of the divine nature. Now in this game, there is another piece. This is the last piece we're going to look at today. It's called the bishop. The bishop. What is a bishop? A bishop is a priest. And historically, what a priest does, a priest represents an intermediary between God and man. A go-between. If you grew up Catholic, 
You know, maybe you went to confession and you, you confessed your sin to a priest because you, you, for some reason you didn't feel that you could do that. It had to be someone of the cloth to go on your behalf, all right? That's that faith tradition. In the Jewish tradition, in Scripture, we read of the temple. And in that temple, there was a holy of holies. And in the holy of holies was the presence of God. And there hung from the ceiling a great, thick, long veil that separated the holy of holies from the outer court. Not just anybody could go in there. Had to be a representative. Had to be a high priest. Somebody that met all the qualifications. That had gone through the ceremonial cleansing. And they could only go in there at certain times. But they went on behalf of the people to meet with God. What happened when Jesus was on that cross? We've talked about this. He breathes his last. Says it is accomplished. He yields up his spirit. What happens in that temple? That veil rips from top. To bottom, it doesn't rip from the bottom up, meaning who ripped it? God ripped that veil. So what does that signify? Now there's the Holy of Holies, and it's open. Access has been granted. And so you and I have access, and the way that that works is, Peter here says that there are very great and precious promises. Does God keep his promises? He does, doesn't he? Was there a promise that Jesus made? To the disciples in that upper room the night of his arrest, he said, he said, boys, I got to go, and where I'm going, you can't come, but I will ask the Father, and he will send you another, just like me, the promised Holy Spirit, and he will be with you, and he will be in you, meaning you don't need an intermediary anymore. There is one go-between. His name is Jesus Christ. And now that he has ascended, you've got the promised Holy Spirit living in you. And thereby, in your notes, you've got a new nature. A new nature. All right? And, and so by this promise, you are able to navigate life in a way that you did not before because of the Holy Spirit. You can, you can obey God in a way that you were never able to. You're a new creation. The old has passed away. The new has come. Peter says that by this we've escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. You no longer are slave to sin because of your new nature. Now you may be thinking, well, Pastor Scott, I'm a Christian, which I guess means I've got a new nature. I still struggle with sin. I still give in to temptation. Well, join the club. Right? We all struggle with that. But the difference is, you now have something you didn't have before. Used to be, all you had was that old nature. You were hardwired to sin. You were bound to fail. Now you got a shot. Because you can live according to the spirit that lives in you. The new nature that lives in you. And so the inclination of your flesh is still there because you still got the remnant of that old nature. You still are finite. You still have this fallenness about you, but you've got a perfection that lives within you because of the Spirit of Christ. Now, I've just given you six things that Peter talks about. Six gifts, six blessings, six benefits. I didn't give you any commands. I didn't give you any instructions. That's my kind of message right there. That's a low-carb sermon. Amen? Well, I hope you enjoyed that portion of the sermon because it's about to change. It's about to change because unlike uh, the chess pieces in my office, these are not just here to be pretty. We are to use these pieces. They are to be practical, okay? There's a response 
to what has taken place in your life. Peter goes on in verse 5. He says, for this very reason. So you can just sense this is going somewhere. Christianity is not just knowledge. It's not just theoretical. You don't just sit back. There's an application here. There's a practicality. There's something to do. So over the next three verses, we're going to look at those strategies. We're going to look at at what we are to adopt in our life using the blessings that God has given us. And he starts by saying, for this reason, make every effort. Effort. Yes. Make every effort. Which means your first strategy in your notes, number one, be diligent. Be diligent. This is going to take some diligence. This is going to take some work. You're like, work? Christianity? Is work? That doesn't sound right. I thought that we're saved by grace through faith. That's right. You don't come to him by work. You don't earn his favor by work. You come by grace through faith, not of works as Ephesians says. But that book, Ephesians, it also says that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works which he prepared beforehand, that we might walk in them. All right, so we, we aren't saved by works, but we are saved for works. We're to be co-laborers. We're to work out our salvation, our identity. So we are to be diligent. We're to put this to use. That's your first strategy. And then he says, we make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. And so this is the second strategy in your notes. Be morally upright. Be morally upright. Peter's going to talk eventually about knowledge, but he doesn't jump to knowledge. He starts with virtue. Virtue, morality. That's very important because the word here is aretes. Aretes. Okay? It means moral excellence. There's a god in Greek mythology, the god of war, Ares. We know him as Mars in Roman culture. Ares was the most excellent warrior. All right? The Areopagus. Uh, Mars Hill in Athens there, named for him, excellence, uh, uh, aristocrat, aristocracy. These are the people deemed to be excellent, right? Aristotle, the philosopher, he sought uh, a rationale uh, that would supply man with excellence. Philosophy was all about looking for excellence, that we, we should pursue in a more excellent way of thinking, Paul, uh, Peter rather takes that term, aretes, and applies it to Christian thought. We ought to pursue and, and desire to be excellent. Who is the most excellent? God is. The paradigm of excellence is Jesus Christ. We are to have a passion to be like him. You don't come to God in moral perfection. You come in humility. You come recognizing your flaws, your fallenness. If you were perfect, you wouldn't need God. And so you come to him because you want to be like him. He's the standard. All have fallen short of the glory of God, right? He's the standard. He's that by which we are all judged. So we come with a desire to be like him. Whenever somebody comes to me and they say, would you consider discipling me, Pastor Scott? One of the first questions I would ask is, is there any areas of moral compromise in your life? You know, are you, are you living unethically? Are you, are you living with your girlfriend? You know, you're looking at pornography. Why? Why is all that important? Because that stuff will derail discipleship. That is counter to the moral excellence that God desires for you. You don't have to be perfect, okay? You will never be perfect until you stand before Christ in eternity and you are given your glorious new uh, resurrection body or transformation body, Uh, but you should absolutely have a desire to be like him. 
to be a disciple. That's what the concept is. It's to become a reasonable facsimile of Jesus Christ. And without a commitment to moral excellence, you're not really growing. You're never going to learn anything if you've got a commitment. You're just, you're just filling your head with, with information here. So you, you start by looking at the deity and you say, I want to be like him. And then, number three in your notes, you're to be a learner. Be a learner. Peter says, supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge. Knowledge. Where do we get knowledge? Well, this is Bible study. Bible study. I don't mean coming in here on Sunday and listening to Pastor Scott yammer on for 40 minutes or so. I mean, you're in the Word. Are you in your Bibles? How often? Should be every day. How often do babies crave milk? Once a week? Every day. Every day. Scripture says like newborn babes long for the pure spiritual milk of the Word. The Word of God ought to be precious to you. It ought to be something you crave. The more you consume it, the more you want of it. I've been to funerals of Christians that lived long lives, and often uh, I've seen churches put the Bibles of the deceased believer on a table outside of the sanctuary. People would come by, they'd see the pictures, and they'd see that person's Bible, and they'd pick it up. You know, they lived a long life of faithfulness. This Bible is just falling apart. It's all marked up. It's got pages falling out of it. It's got a spine and a binding that is loosened because of the hands that turned that thing. I know today we all have this thing in our pocket that we, you know, we read the Bible on our phone or something like that. Times have kind of changed. Maybe when our generation dies, we're just going to put our phone on the table outside the church, you know. I think maybe we've lost something there. But the point is, we're to be in the Bible. You're to be well acquainted with it. There's a, a, a phrase attributed to Thomas Aquinas in the Latin, hominem unius libri timeo, beware the man of one book. Beware the man of one book. People have interpreted that as meaning, you know, don't, don't just read one book. No, consume vast amounts of literature. You know, we should beware the man who only reads one, but that's not what Aquinas meant. Aquinas meant, no, no. It means beware the man of one book. The woman of one book, that one book being the Bible, because those who are acquainted with the Bible are supremely formidable people. They are not to be underestimated. They are impressive people. Solomon said the beginning of wisdom is this, get wisdom. Where do you start if you want to be wise? You go find wisdom. Where is it? It's in the Bible. And then Peter goes on, he says, you supplement your faith with virtue, virtue with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, self-control. And so this is number four in your notes, be disciplined, be disciplined. This is where the knowledge that you accumulate through the word of God begins to run headlong through your body and it begins to, to manifest because as you read the scripture, it's like you're looking in a mirror. You see things that are wrong. You start to see issues. And here's the thing about issues. People are like, I got issues. Yeah, issue. <laughs> you the issue. You know, and when you read the Bible, you realize, I got issues. They're my issues. When I look at the Bible, I discover I've got an anger problem. I've got a, I've got a complaining problem. I've got a go 70 and a 40 problem. I need to make some changes. And, and you read Scripture and you see the way things ought to be, and then you compare them to the way things are in you. 
you know, in me. And there is now a demand by Scripture for a negation of that which runs counter in my life to God's word. Discipline. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 9, 7, he says, But I discipline my body. Keep it under control. Other verses, uh, other translations say, I buffet my body to make it my slave. Discipline. I had a, I had a young guy in a young adult's Bible study years ago, a fellow by the name of Nick. And he, he was a character. He took everything very, very viscerally. And we would be reading in Scripture, and there'd be some kind of life application, some kind of you know, direct thing that you apply practically in your life. And whenever we'd read something like that, Nick's over here, and he'd, he'd make a noise. He'd go, mmm. Everybody'd be like, are you all right? And then I'd read on, and I'd, I'd come to something else, and he'd go, oh, you know? Like, like he's just getting punched in the gut. And it was kind of funny, but the, the fact is, yeah, Scripture ought to have that impact on us. You don't have to make any noises or grunts or anything like that, but it should, it should bring about an awareness that there's something there that needs to change. It allows us to get downwind of ourselves. It allows us to recognize what's going on. I don't know if you've ever had a teenager living in your house that comes home from a sports camp or a, a, you know, a practice for football or basketball or something like that, and they come in there and they kick off their shoes, they slump on the sofa, you know, and, and, and suddenly you, you notice something, and, and the dog leaves the room, you know? And you're like, whoa, what, 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 what in the world? And the kid's like, what? What do you mean? Doesn't notice. Why not? Because he's been surrounded by sweaty dudes for a while. He's gone nose blind. You know? The olfactory sense has gone on, gone on vacation for a while because of our surroundings. Spiritually, that can happen to us. We can go spiritually nose blind. You know? We can develop a seared conscience. Oh, you don't want that. You got to stay in the Word so you never develop a seared conscience. It's a dangerous thing, it could do a lot of damage. And Peter continues. He says, you supplement your faith with virtue, your virtue with knowledge, your knowledge with self-control, and then your self-control with steadfastness. Steadfastness. That's number five in your notes. you got to be perseverant. Be perseverant. You are not going to become super Christian overnight. Okay? It takes time. It takes time. This is you allowing for the process of sanctification. Perseverance is the application of the knowledge that is applied to your lifestyle over time. I realize we're in a very uh, uh, instant gratification culture right now. Nobody wants to wait for that movie to come out. We want to stream it. We want to stream it immediately. Right now. Folks, the Christian life and spiritual maturity, that's, it's not Netflix. You gotta, you gotta wait it out. God is working on you. It used to be a song that we sang as kids. He's still working on me to make me what I ought to be, right? Yeah. He's chipping away at you. And this is sanctification. And so Christianity is not a sprint, it's a marathon. You don't just try hard for a week and then you realize, man, I'm, I'm not, you know, it's like going to the gym and you're like, I don't notice any difference. I guess I shouldn't go to the gym anymore. No, you let God work on you over time. And so, as we've looked at all this, a diligent approach leads to an attitude of moral uprightness, which leads to knowledge, which leads to discipline, okay? And coupled with perseverance over time, it produces something. It produces something. And Peter says you have to couple your steadfastness with godliness. Godliness. 
Uh, Let me give you another word in your notes. Number six, be reverent. Be reverent. What does it mean to be reverent? This is the positive variation on disciplined. Disciplined has a negative connotation. That's you stopping something. That's you ceasing from activities that are not pleasing to God. Uh, This isn't you stopping from what you shouldn't be doing. This is you being what you should be. This is you becoming something. Christianity is not merely a negation process where you, you have a list of don'ts. It is something you are. This is Christ permeating every area of your life. The, the word used here for godliness is the Greek word eusebia. Eusebia. Sibo in the Greek means to worship. And there's a prefix in front of that, eu, uh, e-u, which means uh, worthy. Literally worthy worship. This is not just like worship as we think of in church. We come in and we're worshiping musically. This, is, this goes way beyond the 20 minutes or so of singing that we do on the weekend, which I love to do, which we should do. But this is, this is worship in every area of life. This is worship through your relationships, through your words, through your deeds. Okay, This is God taking root in you, in your very being. David said, search me, O God. See if there is any grievous way in me. Know my heart. Know my thoughts. Do you pray that? There's so many things that we should pray that are good things. We've talked about them recently. We, we, we pray and we say how good God is. We lift him up. We say, oh, God, you're so great. That is important. That is supremely important. In prayer, we ask God to grant requests. We say, God, can you, can you do this for me? Do this for this person that I am lifting up in prayer. All good, but this is a component that we should have in our prayer life as well. Search my heart. Make me like you. I don't want to be like the old me. I want to be like you. Take me to the next level. And then in verse 7, Peter says we, we supplement godliness with brotherly affection. Brotherly affection. Number seven in your notes, be kind. Be kind. Uh, that word is a word that we've talked about in here before. It's the Greek word phileo. Phileo. It means brotherly love. Philadelphia is the city of brotherly love. The Bible knows nothing of a relationship with God that does not manifest in your relationships with other people, where you treat other people with dignity, with kindness. Uh, you know, people who are growing spiritually are not just perpetual jerks, okay? And yet we can all think of Christians who act like jerks. When I was growing up, I, I watched a show in syndication. I don't know if this show's accessible much anymore. Any of you, any of you ever watch Little House on the Prairie? Yeah, some of you old people out here like me. Uh, our kids don't have access to Little House. It's too bad. It's a great show. There's a character on that show. You remember Mrs. Olson? Oh, yeah. Harriet Olson. What a mean old shrew, right? What a bat. I mean, just arrogant, condescending, elitist, rude, right? Oh, but she was in church every Sunday. Had her little hat on, you know. I bet she knew her Bible. I bet she knew all the words to the hymns, you know. But there are people like that. There are people in our churches that, that, uh, that are, are, are theologically correct, but they're relationally incorrect. You know, I know Mrs. Olson is a stereotype, and I know that's a big deal in Hollywood, and I know that Christians are rarely portrayed in a good light. 
But, but listen, stereotypes would not exist unless those writers had met people like that. They got their idea from somewhere. And we're not to be like that. It is not the design of God. And so we are to be kind. Now this doesn't just end here. Peter doesn't end with brotherly kindness because it's inseparably linked to the final point. He says you've got to supplement virtue with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection, and then he says, and brotherly affection with love. Love. This is the crowning element. Now, the interesting thing is the word that I just saw in the Greek, phileo, is often translated as love. There are a lot of words that are rendered as love in English. And some people say, you know, it doesn't matter what the Greek word is, it's all love. It all means the same thing. All these various words. I'm not so sure that's true. I'm not so sure that's true because we've got phileo right here. And then he adds to that, in addition to phileo, you must have, and the word is agape. Agape. What kind of love is that? That's a divine expression of love. This is the love that the Father manifested when he gave up his only son. This is the love Christ manifested when he laid down his life at Calvary. What are we talking about here? The connotation of this is that when we express this kind of love in your notes, we are to be sacrificial. Sacrificial, which means your application of that is that you be a servant. You be a servant. You live for the good of other people, even if it costs you, because that's what Christ did. Because you have then become like God. We should want to be like him. Eve in the garden was told by the serpent, uh, you know, God knows if you eat of that tree, you shall be like him. And that's why she ate of that tree. She wanted to be like him. It was a noble desire. She shouldn't have disobeyed God to try to be like him, but she wanted to be like him. Well, the way that you can be like him is to serve sacrificially. Jesus, in Philippians 2, although he, did not, uh, although he was God, he did not cling to his rights as God. He humbled himself. He took on the form of a servant. He humbled himself even unto the point of death. You serve. You want to know if you're becoming more like God? Are you serving? Are you serving? You, know, you want to know a practical way that you can serve people? Buy a pickup truck. Some of you are like, I was not expecting you to say that, Pastor Scott. Some of you have a pickup truck. You know where I'm going with this. If you have a pickup truck, what happens? People come out of the woodwork. They're like, hey, hey, so I got this dresser. You know? Hey, so uh, there's, a, there's a sofa in Raleigh. My Hyundai won't quite cut it. Do you have some time? You know what I mean? So just a practical way. You're like, Pastor Scott, you got a pickup truck? No. I'm nowhere near manly enough for that. Pray for me, all right? Eventually. <laughs> These are the strategies, all right? And then to what end is all this? Peter says in verse 8, he says, For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful. In the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice he didn't say that, that these qualities, if they are yours, you will be victorious. He says they keep you from being ineffective. You see, this experience called the Christian life, this, this, this game that we're presenting here, this is not a game that you are 
expected to win because it's already won. It's already won. You don't play the game to win it. You play in a manner of a winner. But the game has already been won. Our job is not to checkmate our enemy. Our job is to move the pieces in a manner consistent with the grand champion. You see, I heard a story about a chess champion. He went on vacation in Europe. He was an art lover, and so he decided to pop into an art gallery, and he's walking around, he's looking at all the various paintings in the art gallery, and he sees one that just just stops him in his tracks. He's mesmerized looking at this painting. It's a picture of a chess match in progress. And on one side of the chessboard is the devil. And old Satan is just sitting there, and he's looking pretty smug. He's got a smile on his face. His arms are crossed, and he's just... He's just leaning back, looking very happy with his gameplay. And on the other side of that chessboard sits a young man. This young man is not relaxed. He's anxious. He's anxious. Sweat is pouring off of his brow. He's weeping. Uh, he, he's, he's got a, a, a wrinkles on his forehead because he's distraught as he stares at that chessboard and he's chewing his fingernails. He knows. He's about to lose. It becomes very clear to this chess master as he's watching, as he's looking at this painting. He's looking at that board and he sees by the pieces there's one move left to make. And it's apparent that the devil is about to claim the soul of this young man in this Faustian game of chess. And the title of the painting says it all, Checkmate. Checkmate. And this man just stands there and he looks at this painting for hours He's just mesmerized. And then a smile creeps across his face. And he bolts away and he finds the proprietor of the gallery. He says, do you, uh, you got a chessboard around here somewhere? I, I, I need a chessboard. They find a chessboard. He sets it up in front of that painting. And he arranges the pieces on the board exactly as they appear in that painting. And he looks at the board and he looks at the painting. And he looks at the board and he looks at the painting. And he looks at the board. He looks at the painting. He says, aha! <laughs> and he starts to laugh. And then he grows silent. And he moves up in front of that painting and he he gets very close to the face of that young man. And he says, oh, sir. Oh, I wish you could hear me right now. I know you're just a painting, but I wish you could hear me. Because I would tell you there's no need to worry. You, you, You could stop weeping. You could stop sweating. You could stop chewing your fingernails. There's one move left to make, and it doesn't belong to that old devil. It belongs to you. You see, I know this game. I'm a chess master. I've studied this game. I know what I'm talking about. This game is winnable. You don't have to lose this match. But I know you can't hear me. But I wish, I wish I could take your place right now because I could win this game for you. I know I can win this game for you. And many of us, have been duped into thinking that the devil has won. In whatever area of your life, you you are backed into a corner, you've got some circumstances going on where you feel like you are paralyzed, that you've got nowhere to go, you're not going to grow, you're not going to amount to anything, you're not going to experience joy and happiness in your life. But let me tell you something. If you 
are but a pawn, a commoner like me. And by faith, you have trusted in a righteous king. You have obtained a limitless grace through no effort of your own. It found you, didn't matter where you were. And by that grace, you now have a new a new way to navigate all of the issues of life by virtue <laughs> of your new nature. If that is your case, then you need to understand something. You need to know that there is a righteous king that has already played and won this game. And he has checkmated the enemy. Your job's not to win the game. It's already won. We're just here to move these pieces in a manner reminiscent of that righteous king, that grand champion. So are we ready to play now? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that the game is already won, Lord. And it's so much more than a game. This is, this is everything. But we serve a victorious God who went in our place. You have checkmated the enemy for all time and eternity. And so we now find a seat at this board knowing the end from the beginning. Would you help us to live as victors every single day? I pray for the spiritual health and, and, and well-being and growth of everybody in this room. Make us into your image. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.